everybody, and welcome to another episode of Spoofed, all things fraud and customer experience. I'm your host, Jeff Kerchick, head of sales for Next Caller, one of the leaders in the space of fraud and authentication for contact centers. It's been a little while, but we're back. Uh, we're back now. It's a new year, and we're, we're turning the corner, hopefully towards the end of the uh, pandemic. And today, I have a very, very special guest. I'm really excited to introduce her. Um, she is a world-renowned social engineer. She's been hired to bypass security systems through a no-tech mixture of psychology, con artistry, cunning, and guile. She's an expert in negotiation, persuasion, and influence, nonverbal communication, and deception. She can diffuse a crisis situation or talk her way into a secure building. On top of all that, she's a top 25 uh, women in cyber in 2020. She was named top 50 women of influence in cyber in 2019, nominated for Godmother of Security Award last year in 2020, and she won the most educational security blog in 2020 as well. So a very esteemed person in the cybersecurity uh, community. I want to welcome Jenny Radcliffe. Jenny, uh, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Jeff. And wow, yeah, you forget when you give an introduction like that. I've got a swimming certificate as well. I feel embarrassed, but thank you for that lovely intro. Nice to be here. Yeah, absolutely. You've got a lot of great accolades. Um, and I guess on that note, it would be great to maybe tell the audience a little bit about who you are. Sure. I mean, I'm from um, northwest of England, so you'll detect a little bit of an accent. And um, yeah, I'm my handle online, so people know me as the people hacker. And as you mentioned in your introduction, I don't really use tech for that. I, I'm known as the people hacker because I work with people in security situations, basically to test security systems, to test if we can talk our way in or persuade our way past protocols and operational procedures. Um, and, and then we fix it. It's an education piece. I go in, we, we tell people, look, this is how I got past. This is the things, the problems that we had. This is what you need to do to tell people how it works. And that's con artistry, really. And, you know, we tell them how it works. We tell them, you know, this is the way we conned you. And then from there, you know, hopefully their security is hardened. And the real bad guys, um, the, the real sort of con artists and criminals can't use the same methods to get past. So that's really what I do. Um, and spend a lot of my time speaking about it and trying to educate and, and, and sort of bring it to people's attention. That's that's great. And my understanding is that you kind of were kind of brought into this world from a young age, you know, and it's interesting. We we uh, we, we recently interviewed Brett Johnston, who's a pretty famous. Uh, yeah, former, I know Brett. Uh, Brett's awesome. Yeah. yeah, and he and he had kind of grown up in 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 crime. I mean, it was kind of like what got him into this world, and now he's one of the good guys. But it sounds like, based on what I researched about you, that you have maybe a similar background growing up. It would be good to have that color. I think the audience would love to like hear about what it was like for you growing up and how this became an attractive field for you. Sure. I mean, I as I say, I'm from um, I'm from a city in the northwest of England called Liverpool. Most people know Liverpool because of two things: they know it for the Beatles, um, and they know it for soccer. So Liverpool Football Club, which is the greatest soccer club in the world, and that's why they've heard of it. Um, but it was the type of city that, when I was growing up, sort of uh, early '80s kind of time, it was sort of on its knees. A lot of crime a lot of unemployment, great spirit to the city, but, you know, there was a lot of problems. Um, and, and I 
uh, was from a big family uh, in the north of the city. And actually what happened was I was actually, um, there were two things that happened when I was younger. The first thing that happened was uh, I was taken by a neighbor and locked in their house for a day. So it was sort of like kidnapped. So not hurt um, in the way, you know, a lot of people are a lot less lucky than I was, but certainly kind of mentally um, sort of subjected to quite an ordeal and kept in a, in a building um, and finally rescued by my family. And then not long after that, I was cornered in a, a I suppose you call it an alleyway um, by a big gang of kids. Uh, and I fought my way out. I actually had a, a soda can and I shook it up and kind of exploded it in, in, in the biggest kid's face and then crunched it, <laughs> crunched it up and hit him over the head with it until his head was bleeding and, and, and got myself out of there. And after that, my parents kind of thought, you know, she needs probably to learn a little bit about being streetwise and a little bit, you know, they gave me a little bit more freedom to kind of learn how to look after myself sort of better and not get into these situations. And so they let my extended family, so these are cousins, sort of look after me. And they they were not bad kids, but certainly curious kids, getting into sort of empty buildings just to look around, um, that type of thing. And so I would have been about seven or eight when I first kind of started going out with them at night and getting into all the empty buildings in the neighborhood. And then it sort of progressed from there into buildings that perhaps were only empty at night or weren't empty at all. Uh, so, so yeah, it was, uh, I would say, uh, you know, when you live in it, it doesn't feel like a tough childhood. And I certainly didn't think my family, my cousins were criminals, but looking back, um, you know, it, it, it certainly wasn't normal. It wasn't usual uh, what we did, certainly not at that age, you know. No, that's that's great. So I guess what you're telling me is that all this time I've been spending learning Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a waste. I just need a soda can and I'm, uh, I'm on my way to, to self-defense. <laughs> well, uh, well, you know, that improvisational mindset, though, is something that I even when I teach it uh, is something that was really useful to me, you know, over the years because I was little and I, I wasn't taught how to do anything. I couldn't do cool sort of uh, martial arts or anything. So actually, you know, it was quick thinking, but it was dangerous. And that was why uh, my parents decided to get me out of there a little bit, I guess. No, that's that's that, <laughs> it's awesome. I, I can see how you definitely someone uh, strike me that you think on your feet very well. So um, I'd love to kind of just dive into like your persona a little bit. So, you know, some people have called you a human lie detector, a mind reader. Um, some people have even called you a Jedi Knight. Um, so much so that you're famous for being able to talk your way into a building or, you know, I guess in the case of the Jedi Knight out of a search by Imperial Guards. But <laughs> um, at the, the, the end result is a breach. So what single thing do you think is your real superpower? You know, th those lies that you've just said um, about, you know, Jedi Knight, it was a journalist who interviewed me uh, years and years ago. And, and she said, you know, everything, you, all this stuff you can do with the persuasion, that's kind of like a Jedi. And I said, it's everything except the ships. <laughs> I can't, you know, these are the, 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 everything except moving the ships. But no, I mean, I guess if I had to think of a superpower, it's really the ability to communicate well with people. And I know that, um, you know, people, that sounds quite trite in a way, but it really is an understanding of how people think and how people work. And it comes from years and years of, I guess, feeling like I was on the peripheral of situations as an observer. Um, 
I don't know why I feel that way. I'm sure I'm sure there's a therapist somewhere that could make a fortune. But um that really would be the would be what it was. It's that interest and, and understanding of people and all the skills that you mentioned. So I, I you know, I've worked in deception for years. I've I've studied people's um you know, nonverbal communication skills and persuasion and all those things. It's all an umbrella under the umbrella term of understanding and being interested in other people because most people really aren't as interested as they should be in other people. We tend to get caught up in our own bubble. And so in a security sense, in my job, really what I'm paid for is to observe more closely what everyone else does as individuals and in groups. And once you, once you learn to do that and understand how people think and how people work, it's fascinating, but it can be infiltrated. And I guess that that's really the superpower. Um, it's not a, it's not a quick answer, but that's really what the answer is. No, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's timely that you bring it up here in the United States. Uh, empathy is something that's been missing a lot lately for us. I'm right. sure as the, the world can tell. Um, so thinking about others in the way that you describe, I think uh, ma- that makes a lot of sense. We are kind of in our own little bubble. And I think that's what, what's interesting you, you, when you talk about that is that I think a lot of people think of criminals as being these reclusive people that are um, maybe in their parents' basement and wearing a hoodie and, you know, eating a bag of Doritos or something like that. But (laughs) the reality is, at least as I understand it from you, is that the best uh, cyber criminals are actually kind of the opposite. Well, it's not a question of of best, really. I mean, like, you know, I've got great friends who are brilliant technical hackers. It really, to me, that's, you know, that, that that's magic. I mean, the things that they can do, what they can see, that that's magic. But, but if we take all of the tech to one side and focus on the person, you know, that bypasses. I mean, one of the things I say is when I, when I speak, I do a lot of public speaking. And one of the things I say is, you can throw millions of technology, right? You can you can put in firewalls and anti-malware and a million things, but if you don't pay some attention to the humans, that's it's it's for nothing because someone will get past it, and it's got to be something that works in tandem. So that's really it. it, it it's a case of it can be the last resort um, for an organization, the last. Thing that matters is what is the human you know it can be the last line of defense and really it shouldn't be um the last line of defense what you've got to do if you're an organization i know you're gonna ask me this later i'm jumping the gun a bit but you've got to stop someone like me getting to a human because if we can get there then we can probably persuade and get past um technical hackers can do lots of things as well but that it's that final line of defense really um so, so there's that. And what I also say is, you know, I do have a hoodie. I tend not to wear it for work. Um, but, you know, that archetypal hacker in the hoodie in the basement um, is an unhelpful stereotype when it comes to training because I don't look or sound particularly dangerous. And that is the downfall of anyone who, who, who you know, hires me to try and get past and thinks I won't do it. People trust me because I look innocent, really, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess it's a good segue into understanding, you know, you've kind of talked about the, you've referred to it as like a conversation hypnosis. You know, why do people fall for the psychology of, um, you know, the power of persuasion? Well, because we're all human and, and because we all care about things 
so everyone's got something they'd wish to protect. Everyone's got something that they, they, they'd avoid if they could, you know, whether it's phobias, whether it's secret life that we've all got, you know, our, our privacy, you know, we've, we, we've all got those things and, and really if you're human, all of us, me too, we'll all respond to those levers being pressed. Um, so, so really, that, that's why we fall for it. But what's happened in recent years is that social media particularly, but the internet generally, has made that um, so much easier for criminals uh, to get to a target, you know, to get to the human part of a target because we can research people and we can research organisations. And so when I make that contact and speak to somebody... Um, I make sure that when I'm speaking to them, I'm speaking in a language that really gets past all their defenses. So if I get, I, I mean, I can give you some examples, but um, as an example, I talk about uh, when I give a talk, which is there was a lady and she was a really tough cookie, you know, director of a company on the outside, extremely um, difficult for us to get to. We couldn't get past her gatekeepers, you know, a PA and all this. And she was very senior. And I only needed a couple of pieces of information from her. So I needed her to click on a link in an email. Now, this is not a malicious link because I'm not a criminal, right? So it's going to get past certain technology, but it's more a a case of does she click? So we're trying to find out all about it. And I find out that there's a charity she supports. She's very supportive of it. And and when people are very supportive of of certain charities, there's usually a personal connection, you know? Um, so, So I kind of figured that, you know, someone she knew, um, are being affected by what this charity supported. And so the email that, that we sent to her, um, when she reads it, that, that pushes so many buttons, you know. So we spoof the email, we're pretending to be the charity, we're pretending to, you know, give her the, the case, um, and we know that she's going to click. Now, if you compare something like that to a phishing email that somebody sends out to, you know, 500,000 email addresses that they've taken off the, the dark web, and all it is, it says... You know, I've got $2 million for you. Give me your, your bank account and I'll, I'll put it in there. Most people, not everyone, but a lot of people will say, well, I'll recognize that's a phishing email. But we get past because the type of email that I sent to the lady is exactly the type of thing that just bypasses all your defenses. It's emotional content. It's targeted and tailored to the individual. And so those are the things that get past. And that's why we all fall for it, because we all care about something. We're all emotional beings. If I can raise your emotional temperature, then I'll kick your logic off the cliff. And that's what we're really looking to do. So, yeah, and I guess uh, I kind of had a question, but you may have even almost answered what I was about to ask you. But, you know, uh, it's been said that you can spot a psychopath from across the street. I was going to ask you what that's all about. I guess to some extent it's, you know, it's a, a kind of a difference between this this normalcy that you're you're preaching versus someone who sticks out. But I don't know. Why don't you why don't you tell me what your thoughts are on that? Do you know, again, that was a journalist again said that you, you put that, and it was just good in the bio. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm from a lie detection um, and, and linguistic point of view. So analyzing what people say, not just what they say, but how they say it, what they hold back, that's all part of deception. And and one of the reasons is um, that we say I can spot a psychopath is because part of the job as this kind of people hacker, as someone who can read so much into what how, the way people behave and what they say, what they put on their tweet or you know on social media generally 
Um, I'm asked sometimes to look at a team inside an organization and see if, if anyone on that team is an insider threat. So is someone working against the company, you know, perhaps for money or or for because they're being coerced into doing so, being blackmailed. And so it's that kind of like analysis of people um, that really is part of the job. And, and what happened with this was there was a, a person I was supposed, there'd been an incident in a company um, and there'd been a theft and I was asked to analyze this team to see if we could see who it was that had stolen uh, this, basically stolen some IPR from a company and some money. And and I did that and I went in and I, I analyzed them. And, you know, we found the culprit quite easily, actually, through evidence more than anything. But within it, I got I became very concerned about one of the um, individuals who was a manager within that company Um and through some interviewing and through some kind of the pretext was communication training, through those interview skills and through kind of getting to know him, I realized that it was a dangerous individual. And as you've hinted at in the question, one of the ways that you spot that is, is, is through some of the sort of psychopathic traits, yeah, you know, the, the utter Machiavellianism. And when I describe this now, I'm aware that, you know, that, that some people be making connections perhaps with people they work with, or maybe with people, you know, famous people, not mention any names, but like utter Machiavellianism, you know, prepared to do anything to get ahead, even a little bit. I mean, that's the thing, even to get ahead a little bit. And this faith that they're the smartest person in the room, um, smarter than anyone else, and everyone else is just trying to catch up. And then coupled with you know, that lack of empathy, that lack of emotion about certain things and all of those things were sort of present in this guy. And it took me a little while to really realize that what we were dealing with here was there was the theft and the insider problem, but there was this also this huge problem with this guy. And so when we looked into it, we do some sort of um, investigative work as well, looked into it and we, you know, and I was right. And there were convictions and things that had been hidden, um, violent convictions actually and the reason that it became part of the introduction was after that happened and very much by words of mouth I was asked to look um, at similar cases all over the world and you know uh, was very successful in that part of the job and we continue to be successful in that part of the job most of the time so I guess it's that whole it's a different application of the skills chef you know it's how can you apply that acute uh, pro, you know, sort of reading of people and sort of profiling people's psychology. How can you, what situation can you apply that to? And, and it's clients that come to me that they think of the situation that they think it can be applied to sometimes. Um, so that's what that's all about. Awesome. That's uh, really fantastic stuff. Um, so it's pretty evident, you know, based on what we've discussed that you can read people. And as a social engineer, you're on the offensive. So I think a lot of these insights are helpful for people to understand, you know, your mindset, but, you know, in your day to day, you're trying to help do the opposite play defense. So as a, as a business exec trying to protect your operation, how do you like inverse this skill that you have in order to spot the impersonator? You know, it's, it's, um, it's sort of, it's a difficult one because, it, it, what what the answer that people want to hear in business is that you can you can buy something right that you can throw some money at it and it go away. The truth is that the only way you can inverse this is to, is to know your people better than the criminals, and really that can only be done at line manager level. So if I'm looking into your company 
if your organization's a target because you've hired me to, 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 to sort of simulate an attack, I'm going to know your organization incredibly well. I'm going to look at the history, at the way that you, you respond to hierarchy. I'm going to look at the problems that you've got. I'm going to look at the way people celebrate right? And the way they commiserate, what's the culture within the company, within employees, where does the real power lie? All of that stuff is really hard to observe when you're in the weeds, when you're in the thick of it, you know, and you're part of the culture. It's difficult to really look at ourselves through that kind of uh, microscope, but it's the only way that you're going to avoid someone just bypassing it really, because you're looking for, and you said it earlier, you're looking for anomalies, you're looking for um, changes in behavior. You know, there's there's Jim or Jane on, on the production line or on the phone. Are they are they okay today? They act normally. And it can only be done at supervisor level. You can only do it at that level in a large organization. You can't possibly know everyone really well, but you have to know your team really well. And if you do that, we'll start to, you know, you'll start to spot if there's a problem, but also, if someone feels threatened or thinks that they've taken, you know, a, 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 a strange phone call or opened a strange email, then they feel confident enough to, to report that and to discuss it. But in a lot of organisations, people just aren't confident enough to do that. They feel they'll be blamed. And, you know, criminals really rely on the fact that people are frightened of confessing if they think that they've been conned or almost conned. So... You know, the advice to organizations and to people who who lead teams of any size is you must know your people better than the bad guys. And that's really, the, that's my only, like we said, that's my superpower. If you want to bust that superpower, a superpower that's shared, unfortunately, by criminals, then that's what you need to do. Because no amount of, it takes time and attention and focus. No amount of money or gadgetry will get in the way of that if you allow those messages, that contact to take place. That's uh, super interesting stuff. Um, I guess, you know, thinking about kind of like the current times too, I guess mm. we could take that a step further um, in the lens of COVID, you know, how would you think about this? So, so I guess in other words, you know, COVID has changed the game for social engineers in the sense that like we've seen it in, you know, we're in the call center space. So we've even seen um, some of the ramifications of that with call centers becoming remote, you know, people working from home and how that changes, how they're supervised and things like that. So mm-hmm. like, how, like maybe just taking what you just said a step further, um, how does COVID impact all that? Oh my God. So remember earlier I said emotional emotion kicks logic off the cliff. Can you imagine a global emotional event when everyone is feeling insecure, particularly at the beginning of spring of 2020? You know, we didn't know what to believe, what the news was going to say next. We could clearly see in any country in the world that there was problems with conveying the right information, that people were frightened, things were changing day to day. Um, and it's still the case, you know, in the UK, we had our prime minister come out at the end of, you know, on the 31st of December, I think it was, say nobody can go into school. You know, the kids aren't going to go back to school. And then the next day uh, uh, say, oh, no, the, he said the kids can go back to school. Everything's fine. Schools aren't a problem. The next day, schools are too dangerous. Keep everyone home. So, you know, it, it's this you know, fluctuating information. Everybody's emotional. Everybody's worried. And it's just a perfect storm because whether you're in a business or whether you're at home, 
Um, you, you know, nobody was making good decisions. Our cognitive load was full. Um, our cognitive load was full. Uh, people had more important things, if you like, in, in quotation marks, to worry about than whether or not the person at the end of the phone was genuine. Plus, in your business, you know, in, in, in the contact center business, you know, the whole job is to try and help. And, 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 and people felt empathy and sympathy for people's situations. All of that creates a perfect storm for criminals because you can absolutely... Um, you know, take advantage of that situation, make money from that situation. And most people are good people and they don't expect people to be that bad. You know, people are genuinely, for the most part, you know, good people and want to help others. But, you know, we've got things in this country where we've got criminals taking, you know, the last hundred pounds off a pensioner and protect and injecting them with you know, water to so that they, you know, pretending it's a vaccine. People are very bad. And so in a situation like this, it just was exploited. It was woven into the script, into the narrative of criminals from almost day one. Um, and, and that's really what's happened with COVID. And it will continue to be woven into the narrative because criminals always use the current situation uh, to their own advantage. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And like I said, like we've seen this in the in the in the call center world quite a bit. Just that that's the you know the industry that next callers in. But just thinking about, I'd actually just like want to pivot a little bit, and mm-hmm. you know, because our world is a little bit different than yours. Like we're you know we're handling these interactions that are taking place over the phone, whereas you're, um, you know, more of like doing physical breaches. And I guess like what what do you think is the difference, if any, or are the tactics pretty much the same? Like if I'm a criminal interacting over the phone versus trying to breach a building physically. Um, what are the similarities and, and differences in those situations uh, from your perspective? Well, you know, Jeff, actually, a lot of the work is done on the phone. And uh, and if you can, you'll, you, you'll breach a company just using the phone because it's difficult to trace. You know, you can, you can phone um, calls have, you know, a smaller digital footprint uh, than anything else. Um, and, you know, you don't have to be there. You don't have to interact with the humans, which, you know, a lot of criminals really would prefer not to do. So the face-to-face side that I do um, is quite specialist, actually. Um, so, so you know, I'd say that, the, the, you know, what's the same is that people will fall for whatever they find convincing. You just have to find what that is and really work that into the conversation. I mean, that's conversational hypnosis is about commands within, statements um, and and the fact that people don't hear negatives. So for example, just the best example I can give really is if you can imagine you've got a little kid and they've climbed up on a wall and they're walking along the wall and they'll fine until you say, don't fall off. And then what they hear is fall off and they fall off because our brain just filters out the negatives um, and they hear it like a command. So, you know, really skilled um, con artists will weave those commands into the conversation. But actually, you know, whether you're on your feet doing a physical infiltration, you know, and, and, and breaking into a building to steal things or to leave, you know, listening devices or, or, or implant Wi-Fi or whatever, or whether you're on the phone trying to persuade an individual to give information that it's not in their interest to do, you know, it really still comes back to human beings and it still comes back to what in that context is going to convince that, that target to give up information that is not in their interest to do so. And really that's 
what I guess what what in my business what what makes me angry is that you can't be lazy about it as a social engineer. One size doesn't fit all. The situation and the line that you use and, and, and the um, techniques that you use are as individual as the situation and the and the person that you that you're trying to convince. And, and and so that's true no matter how you do it, even if it's a phishing email, if it's on the phone, or if it's in person. That's very yeah. I think that's true. That the, the themes kind of remain the same. It seems like in terms of how you're. Um, you know, how you're, how you're trying to do this. And I guess, you know, it'd be cool. Like, are, are you willing to expound upon like some examples about how you might manipulate somebody over the phone? Like, are there some specific things that you would always try to do or like any cool stories that you think the audience would, would like to hear? I mean, sure. I mean, I mean, what we're trying to do all the time is build rapport, you know, so you're never going in, um, all business straight away. And even if that person's got a script, you know, if I'm calling the bank or something and there's a certain, you know, script that they have to follow, I'd always be looking to do a couple of things. I'd be looking to express empathy with their situation. So how are you for a Monday morning? You know, you know, it, it must be difficult right now. Is everybody complaining if it's a health center? You know, God, I wouldn't want your job. You know, it must be a nightmare. Um, anyway, I'm going to try and make this easy for you. Hopefully this is an easy request. And what you're trying to do all the time is make that person at the end of the phone relax and kind of like you a little bit because it's hard to say no to someone that you like. And and, and the way that we, we build that rapport, you, we like people who are like us and understand us. So, so, so one of the things con artists always try and do is make it about the other person. So we put that person very much at ease and chat about things that – it's probably a relief for them to hear. Um, so phone work, telephone work is about building up that rapport, building that relationship up um, and really being very patient about how you do it. Now I can give you, I'll give you a real example. I was on a TV show over here called Hunted um, and it does syndicate in the States, although obviously America is so big that you know it's not as widely watched. But over here, it's quite widely watched. <laughs> And what it is, is we have members of the public, they get, um, they go on the run, right? So they need to try and hide from a team of security and law enforcement professionals who are trying to catch them. So we have some people on the ground and then I worked in headquarters. And what we do is through what we can find out on, on the internet, um, and what we can do through the telephone and, you know, speaking to their sort of friends and family. And we try and find their location. We have access to CCTV and things like that if we get it right. And then we send our ground hunters in to catch them. And the ground hunters are all these huge or very fit, certainly men and women from the army and things like that. And it's a good show. Now, on that show, um, I had to try and get the address at one point from a cab firm because I, we knew that two of our fugitives had caught a cab, but we needed to know where they were going. Now, that is information that the cab firm is not allowed to give out. And this didn't go out on air because, you know, we wouldn't have done that. But I was speaking to the lady at the cab firm. And it took probably 10 to 15 minutes for me to get her to give up that information. But I did it through calming her down, chatting about what she was doing, explaining that it was all okay. And at one point she said, I can't give you that information because of GDPR, which is a regulation um, in Europe about information. And I said, that's okay, we've got it covered. Now, but, which is nonsense, right? And she's been trained everything. But by that time, it's too late because by that time, 
a couple of things are happening. I sound nice. I sound friendly. I sound professional. So that's the first thing. So I don't sound like a threat. Secondly, I'm from the TV, right? So this is a TV show. Everyone's starry-eyed a little bit. You know, am I going to be on TV? This is interesting. But I've given no credentials to prove that. I could say that to anyone. But, you know, people are like, oh, well, it's for TV. And you'd be surprised if you work with for television for any length of time. People do anything about you. It's like the magic words, what's well, for the TV? Oh, okay, I'll move my car. You know, I'll stay out of shot. You don't really have to do that. So I gave no proof of that. So those things are happening. And then the third thing is, she knows she's not meant to give me that information, but I've put her in a situation that's very awkward and confrontational, right? Because she's enjoying talking to me, but she doesn't want to let me down. So what I've done is I've given her a path out of that cognitive dissonance, out of that doubt by saying, it's okay, all of that's covered, don't worry. And she gave up that location. Now, think about the criminal application of that technique, you know, it's not the lady's fault. It's no one's fault if you're conned by a professional con artist. That is not your fault. It is the criminal's fault 100%. And I know you mentioned Brett Johnson at the beginning of the show, but Brett says the same thing. It isn't the victim's fault no matter what. It is the criminal's fault every single time. But that's the type of thing that works very well. Um, and we need to all be very careful of it because I am completely convincing when I'm trying to convince you. That's really powerful stuff. And I guess to some extent, you know, I hope I'm not being redundant when I ask this next question, but we're living in, we're living in this world now where there's this technology that can be used to try to, you know, thwart the, the you know, proverbial impersonators that we've been discussing. So things like one-time passcodes or knowledge-based authentication questions and things like that. And I guess like as a, you know, social engineer, do you worry about those things? Like when you're up when you're up against being asked certain questions or, you know, you know that they might send you a one-time passcode or even that they might be, you know, using voice biometrics or some of these more sophisticated tools. Do you get worried about that? Like what is your psychology? Like what's your psyche like, I guess, when you when you realize that those you know, those things are trying to work against you? Yeah, but see, if I can get to the human uh, then I then I'll I'm not saying you get past it every time because that would sound arrogant and there are certainly you know sometimes some people are easier and more difficult and everything else but if you can get me a human on the end of a phone or face to face then there are ways and means of getting past the human because we all have a way to be persuaded of something um and you know I know that you know I've got you're going to ask me sort of a little bit later, but if I can kind of sort of put the two questions into one almost, um, you've, you've got a situation where everything's working against you and some things do work, right? Some technology does work um, because you make yourself a difficult target, right? And, and, the, and the key to this whole thing, and one of the reasons I was interested in coming on this podcast when you asked and, and you know, and everything is that, the harder you can make your organization for me to get through to those people. So the more suspicious those people are, the more layers of security you've got, the more difficult it is to make that first contact. And that's what's going to put me off, right? But speaking to people, knowledge-based questions, all those things, that doesn't bother me in the slightest, not in the slightest, because I will find a way of getting past um, 
eventually. You know, there'll be something that, that will give. And what we do is we build up a jigsaw of information and of protocol and of questions. Um, and we'll build up, we'll build that up. And when you think about it, you know, a lot of the time when people work in, um, on, on telephone helplines and things, we might be talking about young staff, you know, temporary staff, people who've just started, might not get through to managers or more experienced people straight away. So we're looking for, let's test their operations, let's test their rules. What do these people do when certain things get said? And it's tested over a long period of time. I did a um, a job where we investigated. There's a there was a social engineer who'd been working a firm. It was a financial firm, and they'd managed to get the person to trust them enough um, to change some details. And they'd lost, I think, it was seven hundred and thirty thousand pounds. But that when I traced that, and when we traced that back, that social engineer had been working that contact for nine months, and they'd been working and testing the system, and testing the system, and testing the operations, and the way that people responded to different queries and this one works and then what time of day does it work you know this whole thing was done very kind of late on a Friday afternoon and you know got through to exactly the right kind of person to do it and it's it's so all those things are good and the more that you can put in place the better because you're making it more difficult and what a social engineer will do a lot of the time is just go to the most easy target unless it's a um a grudge you know a philosophy against a company or a very specific thing you're just looking for the easiest target because most organizations put nothing in place to prevent this type of thing so the more technical layers the more questions that you can put in place the harder it is and the better that social engineer needs to be um yeah yeah, and I guess I have like maybe one or two more questions, but like this is a, a actually a perfect follow up um, to the to the last one because you kind of talk about you know you've been talking a lot about the build up to these moments, and I and I think it's counterintuitive because I think the average person just assumes that fraud is a you know it's 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 isolated to a single event or you know like a bank robbery or something where it's like this one dramatic event like when when we experience it at, on a consumer level we it just happens you know i've i've had my accounts hacked and like you, you kind of know as it's going on that something's wrong and you have to fix it but mm-hmm. you don't really think about the idea that somebody was spending time on the dark web or maybe even making a couple phone calls or or whatever like you you know the consumer really just thinks of the the singular event and doesn't realize maybe what goes into it. But realistically, uh, Jenny, I think based on what you're saying is that a lot of this is like a waiting game or it's like a, like a kind of like a patient attack. Wondering if you could expound upon that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a couple of things. Um, you've got, different levels of social engineering you've got opportunistic people just the way you have an inner thief you know you've got someone who sees a car doors unlocked and and, and reaches in and, and and takes the the phone you know all the way up to someone who understands exactly how that, that the car mechanism works and is prepared to like hack it remotely and get into it and, and those types of things so you've got everything from sort of amateurs all the way up to very professional people but you know when, once you come out of the amateur territory fairly quickly and particularly to companies that do have you know good security in place like the knowledge questions and the pin numbers you know they're good things of course they can be bypassed anything can be bypassed um but they're all in place but once you get past the sort of initial opportunistic, simple kind of, of attacks, you're really into people who it is their job nine to five, 24 seven, more than nine to five, you know, 24 seven job to find a way past security and to get into 
someone's, uh, you know, whatever the target is, a company, an individual. And that takes time. And like I say, you know, that was, I think it was 730, I think it was 732,000 from the one I spoke about just now. And that took them nine months to set that up. But, you know, if you were paid three quarters of a million pounds, more or less, for nine months work, you'd be patient as well. So, you know, that's what we're talking about. Now, now one of the problems with this is, is that people, individuals, do not think that they are rich enough or important enough to be hacked. But the truth is, because we're all connected, because we, we work for a living and we know, you know, everyone in a firm will know something that might be of use to a criminal. And that criminal's building that jigsaw, lots of little pieces of information, biding their time. So people aren't to be terrified, but they are to be cautious and to know that we're all worth hacking. In this connected world, everyone is worth hacking. Everyone is a target. And so we all have to be on our guard. We all have to be cautious and careful. And really what I'd say is just remember if someone speaks to you on the phone, over over an email, on social media or in person, and in any way, shape or form that makes you feel emotional. So whether you feel happy because you know you've won something or they're flattering you, or whether you feel scared because there's some sort of threat or implicit threat, no matter what the emotion is, you have to step back at that point because that is the biggest red flag that someone is trying to get you to talk. Beyond that, anything to do with money and anything that requires an action outside of the normal protocol, all of something that you wouldn't normally do, all of those things are red flags and you should stop, take a break and really tell someone about that and say, what do you think? Do you think this sounds right? And just to touch on what you said earlier, that's one of the main problems that's happened with COVID because when the whole world goes home and works from their kitchen table, bedroom shed, we don't have that last little human touch where we look up from the desk and say, you know, hey, Jeff, I just had a strange phone call. What do you think of this? That was there before and it's gone now. Um, and that's why it's so, so important The tech works in contrast with education because if we can stop people getting contacted in the first place like you guys do if we can stop some of those spoof calls and things going through in the first place and then if they do get past the person suspicious and knows who to tell then all of those things are going to make it so much harder for everyone except the most uh, experienced and talented social engineers and criminals and that's really all we can do we make ourselves a hard target that's uh Fantastic stuff, Jenny. You've uh, you know we've we've come a long way here. You've uh, you know really at least for me, I, you've really opened up my eyes to a lot of things I didn't know until now. So thank you. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of folks that'll be listening and and might be working somewhere that could use your help. If somebody were listening to this and they wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that? So I'm easy to find on social media. You can find me on Twitter. I'm the People Hacker or my name, Jenny Radcliffe. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. And there's lots of stuff there. The website is humanfactorsecurity.co.uk. But if you put Jenny Radcliffe or People Hacker into YouTube or a search engine, um, you're going to find lots about me. And I'm happy, always happy uh, to spread this message and help. So I appreciate you having me on the show, Jeff. 
Yeah, thank you so much, Jenny. Um, This has been another episode of Spoof. Thank you to everybody who listened. We'll see you next time.